Welcome to the John Papaloni Show. Today, we are welcoming Cal Ewing to our show. Cal, welcome to the show. Hey, John. Thanks for having me on. Absolute pleasure. Why don't we start off with a description of who you are, what you do, and how you got there? All right. So I uh, am a U.S. real estate and mortgage note investor, but I live in Calgary, Canada. Uh, I've been a, I was born and raised in Alberta, and I still live here. And I've been investing in U.S. real estate and mortgages for Oh, gee, 14, 15 years, all from here in Canada. Well, that's interesting now. Yeah, yeah that, that, that opens up so many questions. <laughs> like one thing is, like you're in Calgary, why the U.S.? Yeah, so um, I got started in real estate actually while I was going to school at U of C, taking geology, like a lot of Albertans go into oil and gas. And I happened to come across uh, Robert Kiyosaki's book, Rich Dad, Poor Dad, uh, which if you've read it, it talks a lot about the benefits of real estate and getting cash flow from rental properties and that kind of thing. And that really blew my mind because I always wanted to own maybe like a vacation rental somewhere someday or like a property that I could go and escape the winter from. And uh, so that really sparked my interest in real estate. And the problem with the the trainings that a lot of the U.S., um, you know, like gurus and those kind of programs that teach real estate investing is they don't apply to Canada because the, the laws are very different and you can do uh, I would say it's a, a lot more limited in what you can do up here in Canada than what you can do down in some states. And so I tried to implement some of the things I was learning. I took a bunch of courses through Rich Dad and some other U.S. you know instructors, and I tried wholesaling and things like that here, and I just was getting nowhere. And uh, at that point, this is when you know the foreclosure crisis in the U.S. was just happening down in, in Nevada and in Phoenix and in those kind of western states, and there's just a huge wave of foreclosures and there was a lot of opportunity if someone knew how to take advantage of it. And so I happened to meet a, a fellow Calgarian. His name is Mike Wolf. Uh, some of you guys may have encountered him. Um, and he was teaching Canadians how to go and buy these foreclosure properties because he'd been really successful here in Calgary and uh, started buying foreclosures for himself in Vegas. And he built a team of realtors and construction crews and stuff and he just kept having Canadians ask him how to do it. And I was one of those Canadians. And so we started giving tours and taking people down. And he would actually plug people into his team. And his realtors would go to the auction for you. You just had to come up with the funds. And they'd actually bid on the properties. And then it was kind of turnkey. So you could get a, either a rental or a quick flip through through his team. And that's how I got started. I, I got some friends together. And we did a deal down there. And that was, I didn't really know what I was doing, but luckily we had a good team to rely on. And that was enough to to really get the juices flowing and maybe want to keep going. And so I, I've never looked back since. That is interesting, right? I'm in the Toronto area mm-hmm. and um, different dynamics than where you are. Yeah. Now, <laughs> like it, 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 there's so many synergies and I, I ironies here right now. And uh, like, here's what I mean is like, what you wanted to do that you said was a problem there would be very easy to do it in Ontario. The only difference is I wouldn't recommend you do. <laughs> yeah. Right. And I'm a realtor in Ontario. Right. Right. So and my reasoning is, look, my theory has always been this. If you want to live in Ontario, buy a home in Ontario. That is a great place to park your money. Yeah. But in terms of rentals, other places have landlord and tenant boards. We have the tenant board. And um, I don't like places that are not landlord friendly. That's my personal opinion. Again, somebody wants to buy a place and invest in Ontario, I'll help you find a place. doesn't matter to me. But if you're asking for my honest opinion, stay away for rentals, right? It's just not worth it. And 
with that being said, I took my eye on uh, Calgary right now, Calgary and Edmonton. Now, I'm also looking in the States. I'm actually flying to Florida in uh, September. But, um, but yeah, I took a shining to the States. You're right. There are a, little, a lot of difference, not a little, a lot of different, uh, you know, opportunities and rules in the States. Like, one of the things that I particularly like and uh, dislike about Canada is that um, when it comes to uh, selling property and capital gains, in that retrospect, like, in the States... You can sell your property, and as long as you buy a new one within six months, you can defer that capital gains. Where in Canada, you have to pay the capital gains. And 31 exchange. Yeah, 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 yeah. Where uh, in Canada, you have to sell your property, pay the capital gains, and you could buy your new property with what you have left. Yes. And unfortunately, I found out from my cross-border accountant that because of the, the cross-border tax laws, even as a Canadian, if you're investing in U.S. real estate, you cannot take advantage of that little tax loophole because the Canadian side will get you. So unfortunately, no matter what we do, we can't take advantage of it. <laughs> but there you're wrong. Really? Yeah. There's ways around. Now, see, here, here I'm going to get into it. Okay. Get into the uh, process. Like, how do you buy? Do you buy in your name? No, I have a U.S. limited partnership set up. Ah, uh, I buy in a C corp. Okay, that C corp becomes a uh, American entity, and as long as I'm not bringing the money back here while it's there, I'm pretty uh, good. Yeah, that's the side of the business that I I don't know. <laughs> I've gotten into debates with people about the best way to set up structures and stuff, and I have no idea because I'm not a tax accountant. So. No, I, I do everything through my accountant and lawyer kind of thing. I let them do everything. Yeah, same. So, yeah, like my accountant and the lawyer that we work with have just said you can't. And so I've just been like, okay. So there's probably ways, but at least with the way I have my entities structured, I, you can't do it. So, yeah, I, I, I get that, right? I mean, and again, I'm setting, you know what, different structures, different setups. Like I, I set mine up as in the a corporation is its own entity. Yeah. Right. So its own uh, corporation, it's a U.S. corp. But you probably agree, though the the affordability down there like you can like especially florida i mean you can buy two three properties for the same price as buying something in toronto or maybe four properties for the price of something in vancouver right and the actual number well exactly like toronto and, and vancouver actually are so close to each other now are they yeah it's not that vancouver went down it's just that toronto went up so much <laughs> they came close either way they're both ridiculous and i think we both are on the same page on that oh. Yeah, like my day job, I actually underwrite loans for a private lending company here in Calgary. And uh, we look at properties in BC, like middle of nowhere, BC, an hour from any major center. And we get appraisals back and, you know, six, eight hundred thousand <laughs> for, for junk. Sometimes it just blows my mind. Yeah, really. Yeah. A lot of times here, the buzzword is, and this is where I'm going to go to my next question, is about cash flow. And everyone's saying with the current interest rate, it, it's not possible to cash flow and people should not expect it. Mm -hmm. I happen to disagree with that. And I don't. And I think if you're renting in Ontario, I very much agree with that. But I think the, at the end of the day, and correct me if I'm wrong, my opinion is that when it comes to real estate investing, it's about the numbers. You need to know the numbers and have your due diligence in. If something does not work in one spot, you'll need to find a new spot to make it work because the numbers don't change. Math is math. That's true. Yes. Right. And that's what I think. And now my question here is where I'm going with this is that what type of properties do you typically invest in? And with the current interest rates and everything's happening, are you still cash flowing and how have you adjusted your strategies? 
Yeah, so my investment strategy might not be as typical as a lot of Canadians. Um, I, I have a couple rental properties that I've had for a while, but my main strategy right now is actually buying mortgage notes. Interesting. So the higher interest rate is actually a benefit when you're buying notes. And so what that means is you're, you're basically buying a mortgage from a bank. So like Wells Fargo or Chase Bank, sometimes they sell off loans or you might have private loans like, like uh, seller financing, right? Vendor take back kind of loans where you can buy them from the original lender who sold the property. So buying the mortgage and then suddenly now you're the bank and you're collecting the interest payments every month. And so we had those really low interest rates, especially down in the States, you know, 2% and that kind of thing. Those ones really don't make a lot of sense to buy as a, a mortgage investor. But, you know, these more recent loans where you're in the 5 to 8 and sometimes private loans are 10 12%. Now we're talking like it makes a lot of sense. So I'm actually liking the fact that the rates have gone up for that purpose, not for rental property cash flow, but for, for buying mortgages. That's interesting. Now, is there any hesitation with everything going you know, pretty much into turmoil. I think the mortgage business that way could become a little bit more riskier. Well, again, so it's all about numbers, right? So what I'm looking at doing is either buying what we call performing notes, which are mortgages where the borrower has been paying consistently. And so that when you buy those types of deals, you're looking for cash flow, right? So um, you can buy notes at a discount. So let's just say that the borrower owes the lender, whoever that is, the bank, 100000 on their loan. Okay, on their mortgage, which is unheard of in Canada. But, okay, but you could buy that loan from that bank for a hundred thousand, which is buying at par, and then you're collecting whatever the interest rate is on that loan. That's the return on investment that you're getting. So if it's a five percent interest rate, the borrower's paying, you're making five percent. But what I like to do is buy mortgages at a discount, so maybe seventy or eighty cents on the dollar. So now, if the borrower owes a hundred thousand, but I bought that loan for eighty thousand. Well, the borrower still owes me a hundred, even though I put in eighty thousand, and that return on investment, even though their interest rate is five percent, if you ran the numbers, it's going to be a higher return for me because I bought it at a discount. So that's the cash flow way of buying notes, and then you can also buy mortgages where the borrowers aren't paying. They're called non-performing notes, and the great thing about those loans is that the the lenders will sell them sometimes fifty, sixty cents on the dollar. So you're buying them at a really steep discount and then you have two options. So you can either work with the borrower to try and figure out how to get them paying again, figure out what their problems are. And maybe you can modify the loan for them to help them get back on track and keep their home. Um, and then if you can get them paying again, then your returns are really high. Like you're talking double digit returns. It doesn't matter what the interest rate is because you paid such a low price for the loan. Right. And then if you can't get them on track. This is why I like the U.S., um, is the foreclosure laws are a lot more flexible in a lot of states for the lender. Yep. And so if you can't get them back on track, it's just not working. Well, then you have the right to foreclose. And if you bought it at a big discount, you can sell it off at the foreclosure auction for the amount that the borrower owes. And then it's like doing a fix and flip. Suddenly you got this big windfall of 20, 30, 40, $50,000 after the foreclosure. And so that's kind of this, the equivalent of doing a fix and flip or something, right? You get you do it once and you get paid once, and then you got your money back to find a new deal. So there's the cash flow or like the got it the quick money type deal. Yeah. Here's my question though on the performing ones, right? Why would the bank sell it for less than what they pay, you know paid? Well, some banks don't. Um, the the notes that I've been able to buy that are performing are actually from there's a, there's a big market of real estate investors down in the States where what they'll do is they'll buy a property 
and maybe they'll fix it up. Okay, like something cheap. And then their goal is to find a borrower who can't qualify with a regular lender. So maybe they're self-employed and they can't they can't go to the bank and get a mortgage, or maybe they're new to the country, or maybe they have low credit. You know, they they're just coming out of some trouble and they're kind of trying to get back on track. And so they can sell that house to this new buyer and offer them seller financing, okay, or owner financing. And so that borrower or buyer will put the down payment and then they'll owe the seller a certain amount, maybe say 80% of the purchase price, they'll owe that to them and they'll be they'll create a mortgage note. Now, some investors, they'll sell that mortgage note off to someone like me and a, a note investor. And they will sometimes sell those notes at a discount because it makes sense in their business model. Like they expect to sell it at a discount. So they factor that in when they set up the deal. So that's how I've gotten a lot of my performing mortgages is by buying directly from seller finance lenders. Got it. So here's the what I took out of that. What ends up happening, I'm going to give you an example. And yeah. you tell me if I'm on track. Sure. So give you an example. Home is $500,000. Um, I'm a seller. And... Uh, I'm selling for five hundred thousand. The person's willing to put down a hundred thousand dollars. That leaves a four hundred thousand dollar mortgage. Yep. I was actually willing to sell it for four fifty, which means I have that fifty thousand dollar gap. So I will take that deal as that seller, or whatever. Then I'll pass it off to you. I'll take the uh, three fifty instead of the four hundred, so it's not my problem anymore. And I got the four fifty I was willing to take anyways. Yes, exactly. And maybe you purchased that house for way cheaper. Put a little, you know, lipstick. Reno. Yeah, you put in, you only paid it, put in maybe 250 into it. So you're still making a nice profit, even though you're selling that loan at a discount to me. Yeah. So that's some, some people, that's their whole business model. And they'll just keep doing that again and again. That makes sense. That makes sense. It's yeah. basically they want to sell for what they can get it and get right now. And uh, there's enough profit for them just to dump it. And they'd rather do it that way where it's the for sure and they got their money in their pocket than to lower the price with the seller who they have to wait for the money. And another example is um, loan investors like myself who buy lots and lots of notes. Sometimes these are really big players and they'll need cash. So I, I met a guy that had like 40 different loans that he owned and he wanted to buy an apartment complex. And so he needed cash to buy it. And so he was willing to sell his loans at a discount because to him, he had a better, bigger investment. He's willing to take a bit of a loss to get cash now to buy a bigger deal. So lots of different ways. That's interesting, right? Like, mm -hmm. especially apartment buildings. This is the part that makes no sense to me because apartment buildings, and I'm, you know, when you say apartment building, I'm assuming it's not like three, uh, a triplex or a fourplex. It is going to be something like a uh, hundred units or something or more. Could be. Yeah. So, with that being said, that qualification is not really even based on the individual. That's based on the uh, product, whether it's performing or not. So regardless of the person's current status, they should be able to get that loan without anybody's help. That just, it's mind boggling to me. Well, oh, you're talking about getting a loan for the for an apartment building. Yeah, well, isn't that what you said you were doing the loan? Well, no, this investor wanted to, to buy an apartment building as an investment property. And so he needed cash down. Yeah, yeah, but this is what I'm, oh, he doesn't have the down payment. Yeah, so he, he had lots of notes that he could sell to get that down payment to take advantage of. Got it, got it. Sorry, I thought... I thought what happens, he wanted to buy the apartment building and he couldn't get the loan for the apartment building. No, no. he just needed the cash for the down, the down payment. payment. That yeah. makes sense. Like, now. I'll just sell off some of my notes and I'm okay at a discount because I really want this deal. Got Those it. Kind of Got it. Got it. And there's, yeah, which, uh, so how did you get in the notes versus like, you, because you, 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 uh, 
read the rich dad, poor dad thing, I thought you'd be buying properties. That's where I would have gone to or in my, my, my head. Yeah. Right. So obviously you found something there. Like what turned you on to the notes versus the properties? A bit of a progression. Um, part of it is that I've been investing in Texas specifically for a very long time. Okay. Um, I love Texas because it's one of the most flexible states for landlord uh, laws, uh, foreclosure and eviction. It just makes it, as an, as an entrepreneur and an investor, it makes it easy to do deals there. And booming economy, of course, as well. So um, it's been a progression. And as a Canadian, um, it is harder to find financing. Okay. Like it's not impossible. There, there's products in Canada like TD and Scotiabank, and they do have products uh, to buy rental properties as a Canadian in the U.S. But in general, for like fix and flips and, and all those kind of things, it's been a challenge. And so I've always, often been looking for ways of financing deals without having to go to banks. And that's where I came across this whole owner financing strategy. And also there's a, a strategy called buying a house subject to. Um, I don't want to get everyone lost in the weeds, but in the States, it's possible to buy a property where you take over the mortgage of the seller and just start making payments on it. And then you turn around and owner finance or seller finance that to a new buyer and you start getting payments from them. So you're getting payments on the, on the one side and you're making payments on the other and you're keeping the spread in the middle. And so that's a stru- uh, strategy I don't think you can do here in Canada, but Definitely you can not. in the States. And so I started doing those kind of deals as a way to acquire properties because you could just rely on the financing that the seller of the property already got and you just take it over. And so I was doing that for a while and it's a, it's a great strategy, but there's a lot of work in it because you have to find a willing seller and then it, you got to find a, a buyer to own or finance it too. So there's two parts and a lot of moving pieces. But as I was doing those deals and I like the idea of owner financing, becoming the bank. So you sell your property and then you get a down payment and then you get monthly payments every month coming in and you don't have to worry about vacancies and repairs and toilets and all the fun stuff that come with owning rental properties because you're the bank, right? So I don't know if you have a mortgage on your house, but if the toilet breaks, you don't go call, you know, Scotiabank or TD and say, Hey, my toilet's broken, right? They'll tell you to pound sand, right? And that's the thing. You don't have to worry about those as a lender. So doing those deals for a while, I I got really comfortable and liking the idea of being the bank. And so that's where I was like, okay, so now how can I do more of that? And I encounter this whole space in the U.S. of of people that buy, just buy mortgages from banks and they just become the the lender and start collecting the payments. And that's how I got into it. Interesting. 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 This is like the first time I've heard that. Like not not that people have been the bank part, but you know, all that creative stuff, right? Like, huh? there's just so much. Yeah, and yeah. The hardest part for me is like been focusing on one or two things because I, you know, it's easy to get, ooh, this is cool. I want to try one of these deals. And oh, I want to try this. And I, I did a bunch of that when I was getting started. But that's why I love US investing. It never even occurred to me to get the owner to finance it. Like, that part is obvious. That's common. But I've never thought about the owner financing, then get a new buyer and using that same financing to get the buyer in there. It's like, you know, that just mm-hmm. threw me off. That's yeah. interesting. I like, and it's mind boggling. I don't know. You know what it is? It's mind boggling to me because I don't know why any seller would do that. A lot of times it's they're facing foreclosure. Uh, and you, you basically say, look, you could let the bank foreclose on you and then your credit's affected for the next seven years. 
Or you could say, Mr. and Mrs. Seller, you know, maybe I'll give you enough money to move out and put a deposit on a place to rent. And then you let me take over your bank payments on your mortgage. And then we'll save you from foreclosure. We'll get it caught up and we'll keep making payments. And then you're, you're in the clear. So that's usually the way that people would be willing to do that. Um, or people that don't need all the money right away. And so you can buy it at a price where they're going to get money, you know, coming in every month because there's owner financing it. You can pay them a little bit and then you pay off their bank mortgage at the same time. So there's different ways of structuring it to right. advantage the seller. What about title though? How does that, does that transfer? Interesting question. Yeah. So you actually, because there's a deed and then there's a mortgage document, they're not the same thing. Right. right? And some people don't know that they're two different pieces of paper. So in the States, at least in most States, you can buy the house and have the deed in your name or your company's name, but the mortgage still stays in the seller's name. They don't have to go together. That doesn't happen here. I, I, no, I doubt it. No, no. I know that <laughs> Yeah, because uh, I've been in joint ventures before and I'm uh, a very, um, I don't want to say paranoid, but since I don't know another word, I'm a very paranoid person and I won't do any deal if my corp or myself is not on title. Very often messes up the mortgage and not necessarily in a bad way because I'm in good position where I get approved for everything. But, but the issue is now I'm always getting dinged for that. <laughs> right. But the point again, because I'm paranoid, I won't get that. And the point is I can't get out without breaking their mortgage and, and they can't get out without breaking the mortgage or without, you know what I mean? So the mortgage is tied to the deed for lack of better description. So it's well, different here. In a sense, it is in the States too. Like most mortgages have a due on sale clause, but it is not a law. The bank has the right to implement that if they want. Okay. Yeah. But here's the thing. If that mortgage has been not, the, the borrower's been not paying and the bank's not making any money on the interest on that loan and it's becoming a headache for them, they can either foreclose and then to maybe have to take that property back and sell it, which banks don't want to do. Or suddenly that bank, that mortgage starts paying again every single month because an investor took it over. First of all, they might not notice. But second of all, why would they want to call that loan due when it's now paying for them again and they're making money? So there is a slight amount of risk that the, the loan could be called due. But I've talked to investors that have been doing that strategy, like old guys that have been doing it for years and years and years. And I have, I've still not heard a case where the bank actually called the loan due. It's interesting. Bit of a risk, Just seeing the differences between the two countries is very interesting, right? Like, very much. Yeah, yeah. Right. Like, I mean, there's certain stuff you can do there that you can't do here now. Interesting. Yeah. Um, I, and almost all the loans down there are 30-year fixed. Wow. Nice. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It has advantages and disadvantages. For sure. I'm uh, Personally, I've lately been into multifamily. I don't yeah. like the single-family home. I hate it. Um, and I don't hate it. Well, <laughs> to live in one, I like it. But uh, as an investment, I think they're risky. Um, you're relying on one person to make those payments. Yes, I could agree. So, And you just do the work once, right? Instead of buying four single-family homes, you could buy one fourplex. You're doing all the same work up front, essentially. And essentially, you can get all the repairs done at the same time instead of calling four different, person, four different people. Yeah. One roof to repair instead of four roofs. Yeah. So. And if one, if there's one vacancy, you still have the other three paying, hopefully. Yeah. Whereas if you have one vacancy in a single family home, then it's vacant. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. So that's exactly uh, the way I look at it. Yeah, to each their own. Where do you buy your multifamilies in? In Ontario or? Right now, look, I, I don't know. I'm either smart or stupid and I'm not sure which one, but uh, 
when it came to the interest rates going up, I cashed out on everything, mm-hmm. right? So what ended up happening is now I've cashed out on everything. I've gotten rid of everything. And uh, with the exception, I bought myself a little condo to live in here right now. Um, I was going to rent and use everything to buy the investment properties. But uh, when I saw rents going up to 3000 bucks, I said, hmm, I can buy this condo and still leave myself with a good amount to uh, invest. And uh, my uh, expenses are under two grand versus renting for three grand. So I said, the math now makes sense, <laughs> right? I mean, did I want to live in a condo? No, not really. But you know what? Renting is still more expensive. I'll take it. So, <laughs> um, but with that being said now, so now I decided that I want to, I did all this because I want to get into the multifamily. So this is, I'm doing my shift and I'm kind of in the middle of that shift. So, gotcha. and then now I decided I don't want anything to do with Ontario either. So everything I have been, was in Ontario and I'm, I'm just not interested in it. Uh, I've seen too many clients because I have a realtor's license and a mortgage license. And I've seen too many, too many people need to go to the landlord and tenant board, or as I call it, the tenant board, and they have an 18-month wait. And it's wow. like, no thanks. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. you know, no thanks. So, and, and I've been hanging out in Florida a lot, and I really like it out there. So that's what caught my interest there. So, and I know it's landlord-friendly there as well. Texas is, is another thing that I had my eye on. Yeah, yeah, both both states for sure. And you can still buy them at a price that makes sense too. You don't have to put down five hundred thousand. Yeah, exactly. That's my point. So, yeah. so that's what where, where my interest is. I, so I created my little uh, corp. You know, it's called. I named it after myself. How convenient, Papaloni Capital. <laughs> right. So, awesome. yeah, good ring to it. My intention is to be able to eventually get through the securities where I can have people invest with me using their uh, their uh, investment funds. That's my uh, long term goal. So working towards that. Yep. Plenty of opportunities coming up, and, and that's yeah. the uh, interest rates out there are a shame. But at the same time, I see opportunity. You can look at this as uh, oh no, or oh wow, look at the opportunity. It's up to you how exactly. You and that's the thing that real estate investors who've been in in the business for a while eventually have to learn, right? Is like you have to, you can't be stuck with just one strategy because the strategy will work for a while. But if the market shifts in some way, suddenly your strategy might, what's happening, may not work, right? And so you have to be flexible and willing to learn and try new things, whether that's moving markets or whether that's trying a different strategy in order to make the numbers now work for you, right? Yes, exactly. And that's the other thing. With multifamily, they are still cash flowing. Maybe not as much, but they still are cash flowing. Single family homes have no hope. Yeah. So, I mean, I I don't see positives in single family homes in any way you look at it other than to live in. Yeah. I can see that. Again, at the same time, let's be honest, anybody here who's a first-time investor, I don't see you getting approved for a six-plex, a, tri- uh, a, a you know, 12-unit, 48-unit or anything on your very first investment. You got to start somewhere. So if you're watching this and saying, hearing me say that single-family homes are a waste of time and that means you're going to wait, don't listen to me. Don't wait. Get in the market, get the experience, and then build. Absolutely. Yeah, you probably, like myself, right? You encounter all these people that are always waiting. Oh yeah. They talk about real estate investing, but they've always, they're always waiting, Yeah, yeah <laughs> right? Yeah. They're waiting for this to happen. As soon as this market does this, then I'll do it. And they just wait and wait and wait. Right. So yeah, you're right. You got to get going. Yeah, exactly. I went through that. So I, I found one guy that when the homes were average price were still about 500,000, I'm going to wait till the market crashes. Here we are almost 10 years later and uh, average homes, even after the drop with the interest rates are still 1.1 and he's still waiting for the market to crash. Like, buddy, you could have bought, waited for the market to crash and sold and still made money. 
<laughs> yeah. And that's why, again, why cash flow is so important. Yeah. Um, and the reason why I like places like the Midwest in the, in the U.S. is because, yeah, you might not get a lot of appreciation on those properties, but cash flow is stable. And so if something goes wrong, you can wait it out while the market drops because you're getting cash flow. So you're not having to pay out of pocket for that property. And you can just hold it until the market recovers, right? So that's why I think a lot of people, especially in Calgary, um, because we've seen such an oil and gas boom in the last you know, 10, 20 years, that people could get away with buying condos or houses and losing money every month. So they put a tenant in and they're losing money because they have to put money in to pay the mortgage and, and utilities or whatever, but they don't care because they know that in five years they can cash out and make a hundred grand. Right. But I don't see that happening anymore or it could. But to me, that's not the best strategy these days is just to wait for the property to appreciate while you feed it money every month. Yeah, I don't believe in that either. Right. Like, I do not believe that. And I've heard so many of my colleagues, my realtor colleagues say that, oh, go after the appreciation. You know what? Why would you take the appreciation? I mean, yeah, that's important, but and lose money every month when you could just go somewhere else, find a place that your cash flow and get appreciation. Exactly. Like, it just doesn't make any sense to me. I'm going to work some bum job that's going to pay me 4000 bucks a month after taxes, if even, just so I can use three, $400 of that towards a property that I don't, I don't ever see. It just doesn't make sense. No. And with technology now, you can, you can invest from anywhere. Yeah, absolutely. And again, so that, that's just perspective. I mean, it doesn't mean, look, let's be honest. This is advice and thoughts. It doesn't necessarily mean it's wrong. If a person's happy and they love the appreciation that much and, and they're willing to do it, then that's right for them. Exactly. Yeah. If you can if you can float a property, if your income's high enough and it doesn't hurt, then it's worth it or it could be. Yeah. I just don't want to see people that are brand new that really can't afford to be pumping cash into a property that's not cash flowing do those kind of deals. 100%. Now, that's what I like about real estate, right? Which is, is one of those things that... Here, somebody said, you know, I've heard, you know, back in the day with the Bitcoin phenomenon, right? Like then there's people talking about stocks and stuff. And yeah, it is true. Some people made fortunes in both stocks and Bitcoin. And you know what? I love it. When you when I say something that I don't like stocks, well, look at Warren Buffett. So there's millions of people in the stocks and I'm supposed to make my decision based on one person out of that million of people, <laughs> right? And reality is, yeah. Why don't I open up a uh, software company and social media? I could pretend to be Mark Zuckerberg. I mean, that's not really an investing strategy. <laughs> you know, like it's, it's but what, where I'm going with this is that look what happened to Bitcoin. It's close to nil. It might as well be nil. I don't think people who went in on the high spot will ever get their money back. And stocks can go down to zero. Now look at real estate. And this is why I love real estate. Even if real estate goes to zero, just like the stocks, just like Bitcoin can, you still have land. Mm -hmm. What do you have with a stock or Bitcoin when it's at zero? Zero. And that's my point. The worst case... And people always need a place to live no matter what happens, whether it's pure anarchy or whatever, right? People always need a place to live. Absolutely. And that's my point. Worst case scenario with real estate is you hold on, keep collecting rents and wait for it. Can't do that when a stock or Bitcoin hits zero. There you go. Now... In terms of uh, your whole process and strategy, I mean, let's be honest. Nobody wakes up and says, I have an idea, dump a few bucks in there, and then goes under the beach and sip margaritas because life is over because I made it. 
there's always struggles in the beginning and things you learn. What was your biggest struggle when you started out? Um, different things. Um, for one, is finding deals was was a challenge, and that's one of the reasons I moved to the note space. Is it got really competitive? I think part of the problem with YouTube and the internet is that so many people got into real estate because they could access the training and the information on how to do it. Not everyone did it right, but it got very, very competitive, especially in Texas. Um, so that was that's always been tricky finding the the right way to find deals. Um, and, and then I think every investor has the challenge of raising capital or finding the money to do more deals because no matter how much cash you've got starting out, you know, you do a deal or two, you're, you're going to be cash poor again, right? You're going to have real estate investments and no more cash to do anything else with. And so that's where you have to get creative and find ways to fund deals, whether that's, like I said, seller financing and subject to taking over the mortgage or finding partners, um, you know, private lenders to fund your deal. So navigating those waters and just figuring out how all that works and how to raise capital to do more and more deals, I think have all been challenges to overcome. And then being in Canada, right? And you, being in the same market that you're investing in has its advantages and, and being far away, you have to have teams, right? You have to have people on the ground that can look at the properties and make sure you're not going to buy a dud because it looks great on Google Maps, but in reality, it's got a hole in the roof or something. So, you know, it's really important to have good teams of people on the ground, especially if you're remote. Yeah. So, <laughs> lots of things, lots of challenges. Yeah, yeah, I'm starting to think I'm friggin' nuts. <laughs> <laughs> Some days I do too, but it's fun. No, no, the reason I say that is because I, I, I agree with you on the teams. Let's start off with that. 100%, right? You have to have people you trust. But I'm the type of guy that if I was interested in something, I'd be on a plane tomorrow morning to go look at it. I, I, well, I'm just that way. Well, that's the advantage of investing in Florida. It's, it's not hard to get on a plane to Florida, especially if you can write it off. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So it's an advantage. It's like a lot of those Sunbelt uh, states, they have affordable real estate and you can make a nice vacation out of it at the same time. I know I think I make too many vacations out of Florida, but we won't go there. <laughs> like I said, I'm going in September. And uh, I'm going for a good half of September, if not more. And uh, like I, I'm starting off in Edmonton, then I'm going to uh, Florida. Then I come back, then I have a meeting in Ottawa. I'm literally boarding a plane in the morning, having my lunch meeting, and then boarding the plane to come back. Wow. Yeah, yeah. So my, my all of September, I'm literally going to be spending on a plane. So uh, it's interesting. But uh, <laughs> so, uh, and that's why I said maybe I'm nuts. I, I thought I was doing something good, but I might just be nuts. <laughs> Well, if it was easy, everyone would do it and there'd be no opportunity there, right? Yeah, yeah, so exactly. Go the extra mile or put a little bit of effort into it. Yeah, so make exactly. So, uh, yeah, I love that, right? So th this is a good opportunity. Now, you're right about the struggle. Even, even now, though, now, especially now with interest rates being the way they are, I have personally seen some investors are more eagle, eagle, eager to get into uh into things because they're looking at it and saying the opportunities are coming. They may be holding back, but not holding back as in I'm not doing this. Holding back as in let's see what's out there. When things get tight and tough, I'm in, right? Yeah. And some of them are holding back as in, oh no. Yeah. <laughs> right. Um right. how has uh capital, you know, raising capital been for you since all these interest rates have come up? I think um there's a lot of Canadians. I mean, I think there's a lot of people probably even watching this that agree with some of the things we've said about how hard it is to find deals that make sense here. And so I am getting a lot of 
um, Canadian investors, especially in Ontario, actually, that reach out to me and are, are looking for other options in the States and they don't really know where to start. And so we have a, a phone call and, and just discuss possible ways that they can move their funds south and, and try to get deals where the numbers actually make sense. So I am definitely seeing an increase for sure. Fantastic. That's great news. I mean, I'll be honest, I've heard some people saying that they're uh, that they've had a lot of people more reserved on the move. But uh, I have noticed a little bit of the same thing. I posted online that I was uh, going to Florida and I was looking at some things in Florida and a couple of people reached out to me and said, hey, I'm interested. Reach out. Yeah. Right. So I've seen a little bit of that as well. I'm from Ontario. You're right. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, again, behold or beware. That's the two ways to look at things. Mm-hmm. So now what was your... Um, Again, we all have fears. Let, 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 let's be honest here, right? When we start something, yeah. I mean, for me, look, put it this way. I think about, I work about 12 hours a day, typically. Mm-hmm. And I think yep. about quitting 14 times a day. <laughs> so, <laughs> so in there. yeah, exactly. And that's my point though. But there's a point in time where we get a hold of our uh, doubts and fears. And we have what I call that aha moment where we're saying, okay, you know what? I'm overcomplicating things for myself. I'm doing this to myself. Things are good. You know, I found a moment. I'm in the right direction. I'm in the right place. Things are going in the right way. There's still a lot of work to do, but I'm on the right path. So that's what I call that aha moment. And sometimes we have multiple ones in our lives. Have you had your aha moment? And what was that like? Yeah, I've had a few. Um, One of the ones that one of my first mentors, Mike Wolf, that I told you about, uh, used to tell me when I was really young and, and green was you have to believe that you are a real estate investor. Even if you've never done a deal, if you don't believe that you are, then no one else will, whether that's you're talking to sellers or you're trying to raise capital or whatever. And sometimes you actually have to do a deal before you believe in yourself that you are a real estate investor. And so that I think that's the first hurdle is you need to believe in yourself that you actually are a real estate investor, whether you've done a deal or not. Even if you've bought your own home, well, there you go. You've got experience, right? So... The second that I actually believed in myself that I, yeah, I am, and I could call myself a real estate investor without feeling like I was lying. That was an aha moment. Like I made that mental shift that yes, yes, I actually am. And now I can be more confident in the way my energy is when I'm talking to people because I believe in what I'm doing. So that was one. Um, And then I think for me, it's always just taking small actions. So sometimes, you know, you kind of get at a plateau where you feel stuck and you're like, what the heck am I doing? Which direction should I go? But just making yourself take little actions every day, like trying to figure out what the next next most important thing is you should do and just do it. And I've, at least for me, I feel like my confidence grows and I feel like that momentum builds. If I just do one or two things, I'm like, okay, like I'm still moving forward. And if you consciously just focus on like the next step and just taking that action, even if it's scary, even if it's small, you just start that momentum grows and grows and grows. So those are my my takeaways there. What about you? Amazing. In terms of me, that aha moment, I had a, a few, right? I had a few. Um, my first realization where I kind of got myself uh, less uh, panicky would have actually been, believe it or not, like we're in 2023. This was about 22 years ago. And uh, maybe, yeah, about 23 years ago, I, <laughs> see if you recognize this date, 911. Yeah, I got a story for you, and I'll get into how my how moment because it's relevant. Okay. So what ended up happening is I had started started a print and marketing business, and I was uh, I was supposed to be graphics, but I ended up doing everything but 
And what ended up happening is, anyway, certain things happened where uh, it led me into a bankruptcy. Mm-hmm. So in the morning, I was at the uh, lawyer's at 8 o'clock. Or, yeah, 8 o'clock was my appointment. I was inside the lawyer's office. Didn't listen to the radio news on the way there. And the, I was there. My appointment was done at 9. And then I got to uh, some. I got to a coffee shop that I usually go to. Uh, you know, And it happened to be close to the uh, lawyers at the time. So I walked in. And I walked in, I was so happy. I filed for bankruptcy that day. And I, I walked in, I'm going, and they're all looking at me going, hey, how's it going? I go, I'm free, I'm free, I'm free. And I look around, the whole donut shop is mortified. What the hell's going on, yeah. right? They're looking at me, didn't you hear? What? I'm in my head, I'm going, didn't you hear? I'm free. <laughs> I'm excited, yeah. right? Like, and they're like, no, didn't you hear? I go, hear what? A plane went through the World Trade Center. My first question is, what's a World Trade Center? I was just naive. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. <laughs> and then I hear that and I'm like thinking and I go, I mean, even I'm not stupid. I'm smart enough to know, okay, this isn't good. And I, maybe me going into the donut shop going, I'm free, I'm free, I'm free, wasn't a good thing. <laughs> so I calmed down, I backtrack. And then I explained it to me and all that. And I was like shocked. Of course, as he finished explaining it to me, we get news that a second plane went through. Mm-hmm. Right. So that day, even though it started off or it seemed like I, I felt a sense of relief. Yeah. It wasn't really a good start. <laughs> so anyways, going into it, then I, I I had to figure out what I was going to do. Then I got an idea to get back into the business. Then uh, I, I just had an idea. I thought it was going wholesale, right? That's where wholesaling comes in. I learned like a lot of uh, print companies, as an example, they want, everybody wants to print up big booklets, big catalogs. They want the million dollar deals, the $2 million deals. Now you can't go in there and get a Walmart to say, and say, I'll do your $2 million catalogs, but I'm not interested in your executive uh, business cards, right? Just yeah. not worth it for me. You're going to get one or you're going to get none. I mean, you're going to get all or none, right? They're not going to put up with that. So what uh, printers would just turn on the press and they would lose money. That was a lost leader as an example. Even postcards and small stuff. I found a niche there and I did what's called a gang run where I was grouping them all up on one sheet. So I would still go to a print shop and print up their big sheets like they want it. And then I would get the cutter and cut it down. So then I'd have the individual things. I got so good at that, even printers were coming to me. But at this point, here's where where the moment comes in. I went into magazines to advertise in the trade magazines. They didn't know I went bankrupt, and they gave me 30 days. Ah, suckers. I mean, I, <laughs> no, I mean, uh, so they gave me the 30 days, and then uh, I, I went in all of them. Three months later, so a month goes by, no phone calls. Two months go by, no phone calls. And I go, oh, I'm still in bankruptcy, and I'm going to go bankrupt again. I'm now, like, by the third month, I'll be 60 grand in debt. Again, with these guys, and I'm going, uh-oh. Nobody's calling. I thought, now, nah, now, nah, now I'm like I'm stuck and I'm screwed up and I don't know what to do. And I guess I get hit the hammer on the nail there. And what happens? My phone rings. I need this for Friday. Can you do it? Yes, I can. I don't know how I'm going to do it, but he didn't know that. And uh, <laughs> so I said, yes, I can. I thought, okay, now we're off. Now it's not these one little offs that are not even going to pay my coffee. Now I got something that's decent that'll help me at least pay down something. Phone rings again. Phone rings again. Phone rings again. Phone rings again. Dear golly, now these magazines finally called me and say, hey, we didn't receive your check. I'm sending it out today. That was a Friday. No, I'm sending it out Monday because I'm delivering those orders that from the phone calls, collecting and then sending. What ended up happening is I sent it. I sent one month. Next week, phone rings, 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 keep going. Next thing you know, I have the opposite problem. I can fund one order with the cash that I had reserved, but I've got two orders. I found my somewhere to borrow to make two orders. Now I got four. And vice versa. I got to the point that I had 24 sheets to print, and I can only pay for eight. Uh-oh. Then I started doing the check game, 
right? We're writing yourself a check, figuring when I deliver a deposit by the time they cash it. And I started doing that. But then again, it doubled again. And I go, there's no way I can do that, especially since some of my orders are in Vancouver, Nova Scotia, Alberta. I'm getting them everywhere now. I'm going, what do I do? I found investors. And this is where I learned about raising capital. I found investors that, that caught me up. At that point in time, I had enough cash flow. The magazines got paid in full. At that point in time, I said, I don't know what I did, but I'm on the right track. And I started learning what was working and what was not and repeating what yeah. was working. And I had that aha moment where at that point, my first one, where I said, okay, I'm going to be good. This is working. I just got to keep amplifying what I'm doing. I'm on the right space. Yeah. And then I ended up selling that business in 2007. It's just a process. You just got to have faith in it and keep going. And that's what it comes down to, right? Once you feel that sense of relief, then you go full charge ahead and you're good. Yeah, yeah. Just got to keep at it. It's going to, life's going to throw you some curveballs, but you just got to keep in it. Exactly. Yeah. Awesome. So I'm going to have um, two more questions for you, then go into what I call the lightning round. Okay. Okay. Second last question. How do you know you've had a successful day? Um, I think, again, it's planning those action steps, um, sitting down and consciously setting a goal of what you want to get done that day or that week. And then just looking back and knowing that you've taken those actions and you, you're now one step closer to your goal. Makes sense. Yep. Last but not least, where do people find you? Um, so you can go to calewing.com, C-A-L-E-W-I-N-G.com. Um, and if you ever want to talk real, U.S. real estate and mortgage note investing, you can just go to, you can actually schedule a call with me. I'm happy to get on a you know 20 minute phone call and just, I love talking real estate like we're doing here. So just go to talkwithcalewing.com. Fantastic. All right. Now let's get into the lightning round. Just a few questions just that are fun and personal. Awesome. All right. First one is, what's your favorite food and why? Oh boy. Um, my favorite food, I think probably it would be Indian food. Um, I love veggie korma and I love butter chicken. So that would probably be my choice for last meal on, on the planet. Um, and it's the flavors. It's just so delicious. So interesting. That's the first one yeah. time I've gotten that one, which is good. I mean, they're very good food, so I can understand why. <laughs> yeah. Favorite travel spot and why? Um, I love Latin America. So Mexico, Costa Rica. I just love the culture and obviously beaches and sun. So I've something about Latin American cultures just always drawn me. Got it. Favorite podcast and or book. Favorite podcast. Um hmm. Are we talking real estate or just could be anything, general? just your go-to. <laughs> I think 60 songs that explain the nineties right now is my favorite podcast. Cause I'm a huge music nerd. I just nineties alternative rock. I'm just still obsessed with. And so that podcast goes through all the, the major bands and artists of the nineties. I just love it. And it's hilarious. Awesome. That's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Um, last but not least, if you were given unlimited amount of money, but you had 48 hours to spend it, what you spend, you get to keep. What you don't spend gets taken away. What would you do? Um, 48 hours. 48 hours to spend it. You don't have to have the product in 48 hours. You just have to spend it. So, okay. Well, I don't know if this answers the question. If I were to buy gold and silver, would that count as spending it? Or is that just converting it to a different? It's spending it because it's not cash anymore. <laughs> I just buy, I'd buy gold and silver and then I could worry about uh, what I want to do with it later. Got it. Got it. Awesome. A boring answer, but. <laughs> hey, it's straightforward. It's your honest answer. Yep. I guess if I tell people, if I said, hey, if you had a million dollars, what would you do? 
Most people would say the same old thing. I'd buy a Ferrari, I'd pay off my mortgage. And really, it's not what they want to do. It's just our last minute panic, like, ah, what do I do? <laughs> right? Where if you ask it the way I did it, you get what, what's really the thinking about. Exactly. Just go on Amazon and just start clicking. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> ding, 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 ding. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's awesome, Cal. This has been fantastic. Yeah. Well, I sure appreciate you having me on, John. This is great. Absolute pleasure. If you like what you saw and you want to see some more, subscribe to the link below. Thanks for tuning in to The John Papaloni Show.